This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the We Are Her podcast. Um, if you want to just take a second and introduce yourself, I think we'll start there. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Allie. I have been a contributor on the Her blog uh, pretty much since it started. I went under the uh, pen name of Khaleesi, and I'm really excited to have <laughs> the opportunity to do this podcast. I think it's incredible what we're doing, putting out um you know this podcast so other survivors know that they're they're not alone in what they're going through yeah um yeah i i thank you for sharing that you were on the blog i think it's really neat that you're kind of taking your story into a new format so that's really exciting and that you've kind of been part of the community for a long time already um really lucky to have you so what I usually do to kind of just get everything started is just ask whoever I'm talking to to start sharing their story wherever they want to and wherever it makes the most sense to them. So you can, doesn't have to be chronological if you don't want to, but like wherever you're comfortable sharing, you can just kind of start from there. Okay, sounds good. Uh, well, um, my story really begins um, before college. I was in a five-year relationship with um, a guy named Jason. And it started off, you know, all sunshine and roses as, you know, young relationships typically do, because we got into a relationship when I was 16. Um, And it ended up being he was uh, very controlling um, and very emotionally manipulative, uh, gaslighting, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, whenever I went away to college, we lived four and a half hours away from each other. And so I think it made him feel very insecure that he wasn't a part of my college life. And, um, he tried to control me that much more. And it took me several years for me to kind of figure out what he had been doing to me. Um, and really that's what kind of led to my sexual assault my senior year. Um, with actually a pretty good friend of mine whose name was Eric. Uh, We hung out and he was a confidant for me. And looking back at it now, I think he could sense how vulnerable I was because I had been open. Yeah, I had been very open about how um, my relationship could be very uh, challenging because my significant other was so controlling. And I think he sensed that vulnerable vulnerability in me and just uh, took with it and ran. And um, there were several points throughout our friendship where I didn't talk to Eric because I could kind of, I just always had this sense about him that something was not quite right in our friendship. Like he would get uh, very explicit with me when we would talk about like our sexual relationships with our significant others and um, 
really inappropriate at times because, I mean, when we were friends, I was still in this relationship with Jason. And yeah, and so a couple of times I stopped talking to him, but he always managed to like wiggle his way back in to my life. And that really came to a head uh, the fall of my senior year. I had broken up with Jason and it had been broken up with him since August. And November rolled around and Eric just kind of, again, wormed his way back into my life and we started talking and now I was single. So, um, do you feel like it kind of intensified once you were single? Uh, yeah. Cause actually right after I broke up with Jason, um, Eric and I were friendly and talking and, uh, his girlfriend, Marie, uh, her and I were really close too, cause we had been in the nursing program together and, uh, she, we really kind of, Eric and I split ways very temporarily because him and Marie's relationship was coming to a head. And she actually found a bunch of texts that he had had with different girls, like being pretty explicit and like really cheating on her. And he, she found a text message that went to me actually, um, during the summer where he had tried to pretty much talk about what he wanted to do with me sexually. And, um, I had shut it down cause I was like, no, this isn't what our friendship is. Like, I understand that you may be attracted to me, but this isn't right. Like you're with Marie and, um, I'm trying to figure things out with Jason. So you need to stop. And so she confronted me about that. And she was like, I just want you to know that like, I am so sorry he did that to you. And this is, absolutely reprehensible that he did that that he you know used your friendship in such a disgusting way and I am so sorry for you which you know on some level I was just glad that she wasn't angry with me because I don't know I feel like you know she she was hurting of course because he had betrayed her but at the same time like you know it would have been very easy for her even though I had shut it down to be like how could you have encouraged him in this way so it was just nice well and I think that's really common you know um if something happens in a relationship like unfortunately there are these tropes of like the other woman and I think oftentimes regardless if you're the even though you're not the person who did the cheating that person gets blamed a lot which isn't fair um, no, not at I, all. I, she sounds really lovely and had such a mature r- response, you know, which good for her. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, she was. She she continues to be really lovely. We're still friends, um, even though we live so far away now. But um, but yeah, at the time she was just, you know, she was a big support for me, knowing that you know this person that she was in a relationship with, like, was trying to seek relationships with other women that were you know, really, when you think about it, not healthy. Well, and I wonder, too, it sounds like this person, um, you know, he, it sounds like he was potentially kind of an abusive partner. And I wonder if she just kind of knew, you know, and maybe um, in that there's like some solidarity that like, (laughs) it wasn't just her, that he was also sort of mistreating other women kind of in your circle, Um, which, you know, is, I think that's an interesting dynamic, but uh, she probably knew what he was capable of and like not surprised, you know, in some regards that he was doing that to other people. I'm not, I mean, you know, I, th- I hear about how he treated you and I just wonder like, man, I wonder what was going on with them. 
Yeah, I mean, she she confided in me a little bit, and he was just, he was always super focused on the sexual part of their relationship, and, like, she had a very hard time getting him to actually, you know, really pursue anything deeper in the relationship, like, talk about their feelings and, you know, work through the conflicts that they had in their relationship, and she always just struck it up to, like, he was younger than her by a couple of years so she was just like, oh, well, he's younger and he's a guy. He'll grow out of it. But eventually she came to see like, no, this is really toxic behavior. And uh, I don't need to be in a relationship with this person anymore. So, um, but yeah, uh, so for a while after they were kind of going through their breakup, like she kind of said it for me, which in a way was a relief that, you know, what you've done to Allie is absolutely terrible and I don't want you talking to her ever again. And so in a way it was kind of nice that she did that because I was like, oh good, now I don't have to say that. Um, And he didn't reach out to me for a very long time, but, you know, as as he did, he felt like enough time had gone by and uh, he he reached out to me. Um, I think I had posted like some kind of sappy like poem on Facebook. I was lonely. I had gotten mono uh, during the fall of my senior year of college, which was a real bummer um, because I was single and like I had only had like a couple of flings before, you know, I really it really started attacking me and I was just, uh, I was out of the dating game. I didn't want to infect anybody. And I was honestly too exhausted to do anything much more than like lay in my bed and sleep. Like it took all of my energy to even sometimes go to classes. Cause I was still bound and determined that I don't want to lose too much time in class. This is my senior year. Like I have to graduate. Right. So, um, no one wants that extra tack on semester. No, no. And I definitely didn't like, I had had, I had already had a degree change and I was like, I'm still graduating on time. I'm going to do this no matter what. And so, um, I had posted something on Facebook and I think he could sense that vulnerability in me again. And so he checked in on me and, um, which I have to say is like very, um, like creepy, you know, perpetrator behavior. It's like, there's like a, you know, they, they know what they're looking for. It's not quite grooming, but it is like, um, perpetrator behavior in that they're like intentionally looking for that chink in the armor where they can try and wiggle in. Um, which is, is very intentional, whether that person was consciously or subconsciously doing it. I don't really know. You know, that's, that's a legitimate, debate but I do think that um, people who behave like that there is like a very specific um, intention behind what they're doing and he clearly like could see like oh this is my chance to like wiggle in again which is pretty scary yeah yeah and like thinking about back about it now like it it was such a clear warning sign um, that he would do that you know periodically throughout you know our very turbulent friendship um but, you know, being being sick and alone and, you know, not really having any uh, intimate kind of relationship with anybody for months, it was just, I was vulnerable. And the fact that he was giving me that attention, even though I knew, you know, at times it wasn't really the attention I wanted, it still felt good. And I, you know, it felt good for this this guy to, you know, remind me that, you know, I was a very attractive and desirable woman. And 
you know, that he enjoyed my company and even enjoyed talking to me. And he was just, you know, saying that he was concerned and he just wanted to check in on me and make sure I was doing okay. But of course, you know, as always, the conversation steered, you know, towards being sexual. And for once, I was just kind of like, you know what? Why not? It's been so long. Like, he's technically a friend. Like, if I'm going to have a fling with somebody right now, like, this this is a good way to do it, I guess. And so, right. Like, you know, this person, there's some established history there. Yeah. Um, And I'd be, I would be straight up lying if I said that I hadn't been attracted to him because he was very attractive. And, you know, whenever he wasn't being really to a word disgusting with how explicit he would get, like he was very charming and, uh, which I mean, I, mostly put to he was also an actor like he was a theater major so it yeah he he knew how to be charming and charismatic whenever he wanted to be and this time he was because he had me persuaded that you know we're both single like it's obviously it's obvious that we both need to let off some steam so why don't we just hook up and I invited him over to my room because actually I I was an RA at the time and I was actually on duty that night. So to a point, I felt comfortable inviting him into my space, knowing that like people knew where I was, people knew I was in the building, like, and all of that. So it was on your, ter- it was on your terms too. Like up until that point, you know, like you're about, you were kind of setting the boundaries, um, and like you were in your own space and, you know, invited him onto your turf, which I think can sometimes give a sense of safety for sure. Yeah. And I did. And at that time, I did feel very comfortable inviting him over because, I mean, it was I was an RA in a dorm room. Those walls were thin, even though they looked like concrete. Like I knew, you know, like people would probably figure out what we were doing in there. But to a point I was like, eh, whatever. I'm like, you know, 22 years old. (laughs) It's fine. Like they're old enough. But, um, so yeah, um, I invited him over and, uh, things started out very consensual. Um, which is why what happened later, it took me a very long time to actually come to terms with what he did to me was rape because it just, it escalated so quickly and um, he started getting rough with me. And I just remember at a point he had flipped me over on my stomach and I, he did it so suddenly it caught me off guard and I actually tried to get up off of the bed. And I just remember him pushing his hand down onto the back of my throat, like the back of my neck to get me, to keep me in place. And I just completely shut down after that. I, had never had anybody like try to choke me or like had anything negative happen like with my throat neck area but I had always been really sensitive about that area I think because subconsciously I just knew it was so vulnerable and after that it's been a trigger for me like I can't bear anybody to touch me there and yeah I just I completely shut down after that like and I think I very much went into my head with what happened after because he continued to be rough with me. And like, even now, I remember bits and pieces of it, but I really don't 
like I can't remember the whole entire encounter. I just remember afterwards kind of laying there and staring at the ceiling while he was getting cleaned up and like he laid on my bed and you know he was like oh yeah that was nice and I was just so not present and right I probably disassociating as a survival tool to kind of like that's what the brain will do sometimes when it's in those emergency situations is just check out so that you don't have to be present for the trauma right and like you know I I got up and uh I didn't have a bathroom like in my dorm room. We lived in basically like shoe boxes. So I had to put my robe on and I went down, you know, to our communal bathroom basically. Uh thankfully I lived on an all all women's floor, but um I just remember going down that way and I think that was kind of when something clicked that something not quite right had happened because I remembered making the trip very quick and like trying to make it not too obvious what had happened because like I could already tell parts of my body were hurting and I just my my ladies on my floor were freshmen and I think to a point I didn't want them to know what had just happened even though looking back on it now I don't think they could have but still at the same time like I almost wanted to shelter them from it even then so, um, but I actually let him stay in my room for like probably an hour after it happened. And I even remember cuddling with him and I just, I look back on that now and I know it's not strange behavior and I've come to accept that, but at the same time, a part of me still regrets like, you know, I wish I had been stronger and been like, get the fuck out of my room. Like, what the fuck are you doing here after what you just did to me? And like, just kind of normalizing the behavior so which which I have to say just I mean and I think um and I really really appreciate your vulnerability around sharing that piece because I think it's a common experience for a lot of survivors and um and and then because of that I think a lot of survivors carry a ton of shame like why did I do that why didn't I do x y or z but in those moments we don't always get to control exactly how our survival responses are going to kick in. And, you know, we talk about like fight, flight, or freeze, but there's also appease, which is like, um, you know, appeasing your, the person who just hurt you kind of like sucking up to them or sort of trying to stay in their good graces and keeping everything calm in order to stay out of danger. And um, I don't know, I think that's a really helpful perspective to kind of process like those responses that we sometimes look back on and think like, God, why didn't I say get the fuck out what was wrong with me? And there was nothing wrong with you. You were doing what you needed to do in that moment to try and like maintain any sense of safety. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I definitely agree with that. So yeah, um, eventually he did leave. And I think I spent honestly just the next couple of days like going through a fog. Um, And like he reached out to me like, a day or two later over text message and he's like yeah you know that night was fun and everything but I think um I'm not quite ready for a relationship so I think we're just gonna call um we're just gonna call that night like a bit of fun that we had and I think we're just gonna leave it there and we're not gonna do that again and I I remember sitting there on my phone and just like staring at that and it immediately pissed me off. I was just like, how could you say that to me? Like I knew 
what we were having was something casual, but like, I, I couldn't help at that point, but feel like just a piece of trash he had just thrown right. away. Like, exactly right. More ob- objectified and like discarded. Yeah. And so, and especially like after I had looked at my body and seen the damage that he done, cause there were like bruises all over me. And I remember having to wear like, you know, higher necked things or scarves for days and like uh I had a really close friend that was an RA in another building and uh I went over to her place for her to do my hair for a picture um because we were having senior portraits done and like I uh I went over before I put my dress on and she was getting ready to do my hair and she saw all these bruises on my neck and she was like Allie, what happened? And I just broke down. But I couldn't even, even then, I still just couldn't even call it rape. I told her, Eric and I just had bad sex. Like, it just didn't go the way I wanted it to. And he was just very rough with me. And I think she kind of sensed in that moment maybe what had happened, but she just, she hugged me and she let me know, like, you know, I'm here for you no matter what. Mm. But yeah um which is such an important response you know to not have to not like jump ahead and try and label things for you but to like just be an unconditional support system for you so that you could that you knew you had someone you could turn to but I think it can be really um traumatizing for people when we jump ahead and label their own experience for them especially with such an intense word like rape I mean that is something on their own even if she did suspect you know I just it makes me happy to hear um I don't know that that you had a such an amazing friend who knew how to respond well right yeah for sure and yeah so uh my entire the rest of my senior year just continued to be really hard like I really threw myself into my studies at that point because I think I was just trying to Um, I was just trying to put away what had happened and I didn't want to acknowledge it. And a part of me really just wanted to move on. I was like, yep, that happened. And I just, I don't even want to acknowledge it. I kind of want to forget it ever happened, but I couldn't forget. Unfortunately, that's not quite how that works sometimes. Damn it. No. (gasps) And especially, especially where I went to university, like we were an incredibly small campus. We had four, we had 4,000 students like total. And that was with our graduate program. And so like, you know, just a small campus and like I had friends that were also his friends and like, it was just inevitable. I ran into him on campus like constantly. And I think I kind of started to realize that I really had a problem when uh, he like he would keep popping up weirdly in like places where I was. And to a point I kept telling myself, you're just paranoid. It's a small campus, but at the same time it was just odd. And so I remember one time I was having lunch with some of my, some of my dancer friends. Cause I was a part of this, uh, a group. We did a world banquet for our, uh, culture and diversity life on campus. And, uh, I was participating in, Bollywood style dance and so we were just getting lunch like after we had been practicing and I remember him walking into our cafeteria area and like he he knew something was wrong like after that text message and he didn't really try to approach me 
like when I was around too many people, but I just remember that interaction so clearly because I remember him walking in and he like looked like he really wanted to come up to me. And like, I just kept staring at my food. I was like, if I just ignore him, he won't come over here. And one of my other friends, uh, Kira, she was sitting next to me and I had told her what had happened and she, she knew what had happened because she was also herself a rape survivor. And, um, she, I remember at one point as I was just trying to focus on the fact that he wasn't like, that he wasn't there, she jumped up from the table and she like made some kind of arm movement at him because I guess he had tried to get too close and he walked away. But I remember her telling me later that as he walked away, like he just kind of smirked. Like mm. what if, what a power move that's like flexing to just, you know, signal that he's like still, still, you know, in charge, you know, yeah. I still have the power um, to kind of keep you on the run. Yeah, exactly. Like I can, I can be anywhere in this campus at any time and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, and so when that happened, I knew like that he knew what had happened and like, he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't care. I totally like, you know, took advantage of you and like in a way decimated your body and made you, and it was uncomfortable to be in my own body. And sometimes it still is like, and yeah, I just, yeah, senior year was hard. Um, and getting past everything that happened, like I tried to take care of it on my own, but eventually like I was having panic attacks whenever we inevitably had to go into the theater building for dance practice. Cause I knew he would be in there rehearsing for plays and, Eventually, I was like, enough is enough. I need I need real help. I need to seek a counselor. And I had a great counselor on campus. Like, she was wonderful. It honestly felt like uh, she would make tea for our sessions because she knew I liked that. It just felt like sitting down with, like, a mom and, like, talking about what happened. Like, such, such a safe and caring space. And honestly, I have so much gratitude for what she did for me. Oh, yes. I can hear the emotion in your voice. And I, um, I think those, those moments, um, and those people, you know, who help us on our journey, like the depth, you know, and the, in the, the gravity of, of what they can provide is so, um, it's sad that, it, that we, you know, people need that help, but thank God that it's there. And it's, um, I'm just so glad that you were able to find find that safe space because, you know, even in hearing you talk about your story, just like the fear that you had to live in all the time, like in that heightened state because of the fact that your perpetrator was just out wandering around in this tight knit community that you were a part of. That a is really unfair, um, and b it um, it like keeps your body in that state of like of emergency mode, and just to be able to like sit down and have a cup of tea and you know, be with someone who you feel safe with, who is, who could support you. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I just like, I really connecting with like the emotion in the way that you are speaking about that and how much it meant to you. Yeah. Cause I, I know for certain, like I wouldn't have been able to cope or even start to move on if it hadn't been for her. And like, you know, those wonderful talks that we had in her office, like she, I think she really helped me lay the groundwork for, you know, coming to terms with 
yeah, like I'm a survivor of campus sexual assault. Like, yeah, it sucks that now I am part of this statistic, but, you know, I am going to move forward and I'm not going to let it own me. Right. Oh, I just, I, um, I don't, you know, like I, I, I would never wish anyone to go through a horrible experience like that. I also at the, on the, at the same time, like on the other side of the same coin, I just like have such deep gratitude for the helpers in the world and like how beautiful that can be too. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Like they're, they are some of our biggest like supporters and advocates and life would be a lot harder without them. Absolutely. Um, okay. So yeah, so you started going to counseling and then from there, what did, what did things look like? Things started to get a little bit better. Uh, pretty much by the time I went to counseling, like I was just, I was maybe two to three months like away from graduation. So I think that also with the counseling just made me feel like more confident in my in my place on campus because I knew soon I was getting ready to leave, even though like my university had been a second home to me and I still look back on it. And I dearly love the institution where I spent four years and like I have never let what happened to me take that away. Like I, yeah, so but at the same time, um, I was ready to move forward. I, you know, was getting ready to go into, you know, this equally exciting and equally terrifying, like, you know, opportunity of adulthood, really. Yeah, it's a big launch from, like, undergrad into the real world. Yeah, for sure. And, like, I wasn't 100% positive what I was going to do yet. I hadn't really applied uh, to too many places. I was still trying to figure out, like, where am I going to live? Like, my parents, my mom and my stepdad lived 45 minutes away from my campus. So I knew I could go up and stay with her for a while, but I really wanted to be out on my own because that's why I loved so much about college was being independent. And even though I had lived like in a dorm room all four years, because after a while I decided to be an RA and I had to do that on campus. I deeply loved that opportunity and everything that came with it but like I had still had my own space like a space to call my own and I knew like I didn't want to be back home with my mom for too long so um I was still trying to figure that out and I think to a point like that really helped me cope with uh you know his presence on campus just knowing like soon I'm gonna move on to bigger and better things and he is just going to be an unfortunate memory that I get to walk away from. And uh, actually shortly before graduation was when I met uh, my uh, future husband, Marco. Uh, He was a, um, he was an international student. Uh, He was originally from Venezuela. He had lived in Brazil for a time and then Panama before coming to the U.S. And Um, he had majored in business and finance and we met through, uh, the international circle of friends that I had been a part of through our diversity and culture group. And we just kind of got to talking and, uh, I remember one night I went out with him and, um, 
I had kind of been seeing a friend of his for like a month or two prior and he the guy had broken things off and Marco and I I remember we had gotten a little tipsy and we were out dancing and stuff and like he was like well you're um I really like you but you're so-and-so's girl and so I told him actually I am nobody I'm single I'm single and I can do what I please and what I please right now is being with you and he was like okay, I can, I can get aboard that. And so, um, Marco and I had at first, uh, just a very casual relationship. Like we would hang out, we would have really what was in the beginning, very great sex. And, um, like it was empowering too. Cause like he, Marco was the first guy I had slept with after, uh, after Eric raped me. And it was good to kind of in a way, like reclaim my body and all of that. And it was, and have a, it's like a corrective experience to be able to then have safe, consensual, awesome sex with someone. It's like evidence to prove to your body and your, and your mind, like, no, you know, it's not every time is going to be horrific. Like you can do this, you know? Exactly. Yes. And so the very beginning of our relationship was wonderful in that. And actually it didn't take me too long uh, to confide in Marco, like what had happened to me. And he was very understanding and very supportive. And just, he, you know, he said all the things of, I am so sorry that that happened to you. And that guy should die horrifically, like in a fire or something for thinking that he could take advantage of you in that way. And I want you to know that I am a safe space. Like I am a safe person and I would never do that to you. And for a long time, I believed him about that. Like I felt very safe with Marco. And so um, after graduation for a while, I did move back in with my mom, Marco and I uh, actually made our relationship a lot more serious. Like we had continued texting and we saw each other over the summer and we, you know, started to fall in love. And uh, he had moved um, to the city not far from where we went to school because we went to school in Northwest Indiana and he went on to get a job in Chicago that he could hopefully get a work visa and, you know, stay in the U.S. And I was just a hop, skip, and a jump over in Southwest Michigan with my mom. And I eventually started applying to jobs in Chicago because Marco had asked me to move in with him. And eventually I had enough interviews that I was like, yeah, I can justify moving in uh, with Marco to Chicago, which was something I never thought I would ever do. I was like a small town farm girl and never had I thought that I was going to go and live in Chicago. And, uh, but there I did. I guess the right guy was just like, yeah, I'll go move to the city that I never wanted to live in. This will be great. It'll be a brand new experience. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I'm also a very introverted person, like being being in large, large crowds, large areas um, that I don't particularly know very well, especially after the rape, like my my anxiety was through the roof. But Marco, again, hold on one sec. I do. I do want to back up. I think you just hit on something really important that um, that like we can have predispositions for different states of our nervous system, whether that means you're a more anxious person or a more depressed person, yada, yada, like some of that, we don't have a ton of control over. But what you just pointed out, I think in your story is that sometimes trauma um, can 
really exploit whatever that state of our nervous, our natural state of our nervous system is. So like if you were maybe a little bit more of an anxious person, like aligned that way before um, the trauma happened and then afterwards, it can just send that through the roof. Um, and I think, yeah, I just appreciate you being being able to kind of like point that out about yourself because I think it's a really common experience for a lot of survivors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had dealt with depression, uh, particularly since I was in high school. And definitely after uh, my sexual assault, it, it escalated very, very rapidly. And I hadn't been too anxious of a person. Like I didn't like going to places that I didn't particularly know well that like that made me feel more iffy than anything. But definitely after the assault, I just like, and even now I have issues with it where if I don't, like if I have to go somewhere and I've never been there before, like I really have to work myself up to it. And like, I like, you know, my chest feels tight and I, yeah, it just, it sends me into a whole state and it has definitely been amplified after being raped. Um, I can attest to that for sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay. So you're going to Chicago. Back to where we were. Yep. Yep. I, I went to Chicago and uh, Marco and I got, you know, a pretty, a pretty decent apartment there uh, really for how expensive it is to live up there. It's like outrageous. Um, but yeah, we got a, we got a pretty quaint place together in a fairly safe neighborhood. And uh, we eventually got a cat together. And like, that's how pretty much I knew things were getting pretty serious. Like if I'm getting a fur baby with somebody, like I'm pretty much committing, like, yeah, we are in a stable relationship because now we have to, you know, raise this small creature together. And so we got, uh, we got, my cat Phoebe, who is uh, turning five this year, um, she is the light of my life, and I definitely wouldn't have been able to get through like some really hard times without her. Uh, she is, and also thank you for saying that because I do think that pets are lifelines. Um, they are not just for survivors, but for a lot of people. And we talk about medicine with like a very Western lens a lot of the time, like counseling is amazing. Absolutely. But it is kind of rooted in a very like Western medical model of like counselor, counselee delivering services. And there are places and opportunities to heal all around us. And I think one theme that I have found very often with survivors is that their pets are like the safest, most supportive relationship that they have in a lot of ways. Cause animals can't judge you and they would never judge you. And they, they're 100% safe. The boundaries are never inappropriate, you know, or damaging. It's, um, yeah, for babies forever. Yeah, absolutely. Like she, like she absolutely 100% knows when I am not having a good day. And like, you know, she's, she's my stereotypical cat. Like if she doesn't want attention, she's like, no, leave me alone. I'm going to go off in this corner of the house and not see you for a couple of hours. But like, if I'm hurting, she definitely knows. Cause that'll be the times where she is stuck to my side all day and she does not leave me alone. And she gives what I call the big Phoebe purr that you can hear from like a whole other room of the house. She purrs so loud. And it's just that, that sound is so deeply comforting. So yeah, we got, we got the fabulous Phoebe and um, actually 
after only a year of living there together, uh, Marco got some bad news that his company would not be able to sponsor his visa. And so we came to a very difficult decision of, well, he either needs to move back to Panama with his family before they deport him all the way back to Venezuela, where it's incredibly turbulent, or we get married. And I, you know, sponsor him through a green card. And at the time, you know, actually, it was a very easy decision for me. I was like, well, I love you. And of course, I don't want, you know, you to leave. Like, I have no idea what will happen to our relationship if you're in a whole other country. So, and we had already been talking about marriage and family. And so it just seemed like the right idea at the time. I was like, yes, absolutely. Let's get married. So, went through the whole process of sponsoring his green card and we had uh, a very small ceremony at uh, the uh, courthouse in Chicago in downtown Chicago with just like um, mostly my uh, my immediate family members his brother was also in the country like going to high school so him and his girlfriend were there and uh, for a time in our marriage things were great like things were awesome and you know, I was very happy and I was ready to spend the rest of my life with this person. But unfortunately, things just didn't stay that way. Um, I had made the decision to uh, get off of my birth control pills. I was just tired of like having to remember to take them every day. And I I had talked to a couple of friends who had gone on the shot and they were like, oh, yeah, it's nice. I don't have my period all the time. And I don't have to worry about my pills. Like it's a great, it's a great alternative. And so I decided, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go on this shot. Like I'm ready for something different. Well, it ended up being the absolute wrong choice for me. It made me gain like a horrendous amount of weight and like my hair started falling out. Like whenever I was in the shower, I just remember pulling out almost like fistfuls of hair and yeah, it was just, but the major thing it did for me was it completely took away my sex drive. Like I no longer had any drive to have sex. And I didn't really realize like how much my relationship with Marco like really hinged on our sexual relationship because pretty much once we stopped having sex, that's when all of the other issues like kind of came into play. Like it would be a ridiculous long story to detail all of them out, but like he had underlying alcoholism because that's how he dealt with stressful situations in his life because that's how he had seen his dad cope with stressful situations and he constantly felt the need to go out and party on the weekends and at first I just kind of chalked that up to you know we're newly graduated like people from college like he's just working we're young we're in the city yeah like it's an exciting time to go out and like party it up like Chicago is a great place for that but like he did it for all the wrong reasons and like in the beginning he was pretty pretty understanding that like I didn't have a sex drive and everything but after a while he just got less understanding and he made me feel very guilty about it like he would put it as like oh you just don't think I'm attractive anymore and I was like no that's not it at all like I love you and I'm very attracted to you it's just my body doesn't want to cooperate with me like but there is some like hormonally like on the hormonal level on a very biological level like I'm off right now that's not about you yeah 
because like my head was there, but my body was not. And so eventually I did get off the depot shot and I went back to my birth control because I was like, I want to correct this. Like we need to get back to where we were. And I remember the doctor telling me like, you know, it might take nine months for you to feel normal again. I was like, but at least there's an end in sight. Like things are going to get better. And they just didn't. Like I... I honestly don't know what happened, like, from the time that I started that shot to where we ended up. But, like, again, looking back at it now, I just, honestly, I think our relationship and the intimacy that we had in our relationship hinged so much on our sexual relationship that, like, once that got taken away, like, he didn't know how to cope. And that part didn't have anything to do with the shot, you know what I mean? So, like, obviously that was a defining moment, but there were still other things, obviously, underlying issues going on that, um, that, you know, once your sex drive was taken away, it sort of exposed those issues. But that doesn't uh, mean that, like, you know, yeah, I just I I, I appreciate that perspective. I think um, it's easy to, like, blame that one thing. But also, if you stop having a sexual desire, like, drive for any reason, that should be respected. You know what I mean? Um Absolutely. And especially with him knowing what I had been through, like he knew, like, you know, sex was like a complicated thing for me on some level. Like, you know, we had, even though our relationship had started off, you know, having great sex and stuff like that, like he, a couple of times I had flashbacks while we were having sex to what had happened with me, which is, you know, something that's very common for rape survivors, but at the same time, it's so traumatic. And, you know, when those, when those occurrences did happen, he was very caring and very understanding about it. But like, you know, that's why it's so frustrating looking back on it now that like, you know, he knew all of this, but at the same time he let it get in between our relationship and it came to be this very toxic divide in our relationship with us because he started using our lack of sex like as a weapon against me like anytime we would get into a fight like if we got into a really bad fight which didn't happen a lot but started happening of course closer to the end of our relationship like he he would be like well, I just don't think that you're as committed in this relationship as I am because you won't even touch me. And I, it was just like, I want to, and you know why I can't. And then of course, you know, whenever all of that would happen, it's like, well, now I really don't want to have sex with you. Right. That's just compounding. You know, if that, if there's that emotional disconnect, it's really hard to be like, sure, let's just do it. Yeah. So And we had a whole bunch of other outside stress because even though we had had a small courthouse wedding, we wanted to have the more bigger traditional wedding with all of our friends and family. And so we were planning that at the same time. And weddings are stressful. Like if nobody's been through the wedding planning process, like it... It's wonderful on some levels, but it is definitely full of stress. And if you already have a partner that's not 100% in your court, it's like a million times more stressful. And uh, we also had to deal with the um, uncertainty if his family would be able to come to the wedding or not, because getting visitors visas for them was like really ridiculously hard. Our government does not make it easy by any means. And 
So there was just, there was a lot of stress and a lot of turmoil in our relationship and that he would rather cope through drinking and going and off and partying with his friends than really like sitting down and like realizing like we have some issues that we need to work through. And yeah, our, our relationship just got hard and complicated and toxic and abusive really on some levels because like like I said he started using our lack of sex as a weapon and sometimes I would just force myself to have sex with him because I was like this is what my husband needs like I I have to do this for him for him to love me right and which is very contractual yeah yeah it just and like, you know, and when your body is not into it, it makes the act very hard. And like, I would come away and I had injuries from my sexual assault that would just kind of reopen up if I wasn't well prepared for sex. And it would just make the whole, the whole encounter very traumatizing kind of all over again. But then I would have to hide that from my husband because like he just, Marco wouldn't understand. Like he would think that he did something wrong and I didn't want him to feel like he did something wrong, even though kind of in a way he did. Right. Yeah. No, that all makes total sense. Um, I can't recommend the book, The Body Keeps the Score Enough. Um, I don't know if anybody ever read that but it's really talking about how like we think that trauma is stored in our memories and in our mind and our emotions and absolutely is like for sure but um we tend to underestimate the amount of trauma that we store like physically in our bodies and for something like a rape to happen that was obviously tied to a sexual encounter where it was very painful very traumatizing, very uncomfortable to try and have sex under circumstances that make your body feel uncomfortable. I can totally imagine how it would be very easy to be triggered back to that trauma space. Yeah. Yeah. Very easily. So, and even now, like if I'm not careful, like those old injuries, just, they'll just reopen up and then I have to deal with the physical and emotional aftermath of it, that makes for a very hard and very complicated day. But yeah, it was even more so like in, in all the turmoil of that marriage, um, which pretty much eventually uh, came to an end. Um, really the two big things brought about the end of our very short marriage. And the first one was I actually caught him cheating on me um, completely by accident. Uh, he was in the shower. I was actually getting ready to leave on a trip, uh, to go see a very, very dear friend of mine, uh, whose name is Colin and he'll, he'll come up a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I was getting ready to go see him and, uh, Marco was in the shower and his alarm started going off on his phone cause he liked to sleep really late and we had somewhere to be for lunch. Um, so he had forgotten to turn it off. So I went over and turned the alarm off on his phone. And then I saw one of his coworkers had texted him like after turning it off. And she was like, don't you miss this? I just thought it was weird. And like, I'm not typically a very prying person. Like I let my significant other have like all of the space they need. And so, you know, I respect like, you know, 
phone and social media privacy very much in my relationships. But that just struck me as weird. And as somebody who had been cheated on previously, it gave me a bunch of red flags that I didn't want to believe were red flags. But I found something in your gut, your intuition was like, "Uh oh, this doesn't. Yeah, it just sounded off. And so I opened up his phone. And sure enough, I saw a nude on there of her. And I, you know, I went down the rabbit hole at that point and I scrolled through the messages and they had been like, the affair was over, but they had been having it like for a couple of months. And actually they had uh, continued to have it two weeks before we got remarried. And I just, I knew on some level I felt rage and deep sadness that I had been betrayed in that way. But at the same time, like, I just looked at it. I just remember shutting his phone off and putting it away and moving on with my day. Like, I was just numb. And, like, I was like, yep, I don't want to deal with that right now. Like, I kind of want to forget that happened. And I really didn't accept it until I was pretty much on my trip. I was down with Colin and uh, his brother. Marco's brother had been living with us at the time uh, before getting ready to go on to college. And actually, uh, he had found out about it and he made Marco call me while I was on my trip and fess up to what had happened. And that was really when I let it sink in on this trip that was supposed to be fun and a way to kind of get away with what I was dealing with at home. I hadn't really told Colin like what was going on. Like, as far as he knew, our marriage was happy and all of that. But, like, at that point, I couldn't ignore it anymore that things were not okay. Yeah, that's a pretty so, big, <laughs> that's a big end. That's a, that's a pretty big red flag right there to be, yeah, betrayed in that way. Yeah. So I pretty much told Marco, like, we'll deal with it whenever I come back home from my trip. But for now, I don't want to talk to you. Like, because whenever he, whenever he fessed up to it, I told him, I knew, like, before I left, I was just, I wasn't ready to deal with it. But now you're making me deal with it. And I don't want to talk to you. So um, pretty much uh, during that trip, I had to decide, like, what do I do? I always told myself I would never be cheated on again after Jason had cheated on me, like a bunch. And, um, but it's different when you're married, because just being married in general, it holds that like severity of you have to make this work like you pledged your life to this person even when that person has betrayed you and I was just like I just felt like I had to try to make it work like I can't just walk away I have to you know I have to salvage this relationship because I did still love him just felt deeply betrayed and looking back on it, like, of course, you know, you look back at your, your past self and you're like, no, you should have just totally left. Like things would have been so much better, but again, hindsight is 2020. So it's just, you know, those are the choices I made and I made them with the best of intentions, even with somebody who really at the end of the day was just not worth it. So I came home and I told him, you know, if we're going to make this work, like we absolutely need to see a couples therapist. Like we need, we need help now because we had issues before this happened and our sex life obviously drove you to seek it elsewhere. 
So um, I also told him, like, I didn't want him sleeping in the same bed with me until I trusted him again. Because, again, he had, anytime he had come home from drinking with his friends, he had gotten grabby, for lack of a better term. And he had not tried to force himself on me, but he tried to persuade me that having sex was a good idea. And Which, which I have to point out, um, you know, true consent can't be given under coercion. And um, exactly. Yeah, I think we don't talk about like the nuances of what consent is and what it should entail. Um, I always say like a, a, you know, a good rule is that it should be a loud, enthusiastic yes. And if you don't have that like very enthusiastic yes, like a maybe or uh, like that's not a yes. Um, And neither uh, is like badgering someone into saying yes. So if you ask over and over and over and over and over and and finally like, okay, fine, that's not a true yes. That's not true consent. Um, That's coercion. And I think that in intimate relationships in particular, um, like a a spouse, for example, has a lot of of ability to, to do that kind of like bargaining and coercive sort of badgering into sex. And, um, and then it's like, well, it's fine because we're married. And you, and you said yes. Yeah. And it's almost this feeling of like that you owe it to them because you are married to them. And that saying no is just something that you just don't do. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I made him, I told him you are not to come into our bed until I say it's okay. And sex is absolutely off the table. So I don't want to hear about it. And like, you know, of course he swore up and down that Yes, he would do whatever he could to make me feel comfortable and to assure that he loved me and stuff like that. But those, they just ended up being words because he never followed through with it. We never did go see a marriage counselor. We, he would still go out drinking with his friends and I would find him coming, coming and climbing into bed with me and just being like, Allie, just let me make love to you and let me make it all better. And it's like, no, like I set boundaries and I need you to respect them. But he just, he never did. And that really came to a head whenever we went to a birthday party for uh, a girlfriend of one of his coworkers. And like things had just gotten so unbearable. And I had pretty much at that point, like made the decision that I was going to leave. I was in the process of working things out. um, And I was just trying to keep it under wraps. But like we went to this party together and I just got super trashed. Like absolutely. I was blackout drunk at one point because he had made living with him just so impossible. Mm. And um, you're looking but, for some escape. Yeah, definitely. Which I knew I was getting ready to leave anyway, but like, you know, I still wasn't out. And so it just, it made me drink and that night more than usual because I have a very low tolerance for alcohol. It actually uh, makes me very sick um, if I drink too much. And so I typically tried to limit how much alcohol I would consume. But that night I just totally let myself go. I remember at one point in the evening, I was actually having a lot of fun. Like uh, me and his coworker's girlfriend, we were we weren't close, but whenever we got together, like we had a really good time and, you know, we were drinking out of this bottle of rosé that I had bought her for her birthday and like just having a blast. And 
Marco cornered me in the kitchen whenever I was there by myself. And he was like, hey, we should head out soon. And I was like, why? Like, I'm having a good time. Why would we leave? And at that point, his brother had moved out and actually gone back to uh, Panama to be with their parents. And Marco was just like, well, now we have the apartment to ourselves and we can reconnect. And I told him, yeah, that's not going to happen. Like, we still have a bunch of things we need to work through. So uh, we need to start there before we do any reconnecting. And he just got mad. And he was just like, I don't understand why you don't love me anymore. You're not even trying. And I just walked away from him. I just remember going into the bathroom and just crying. And um, I remember getting on on the phone with my friend Colin that I had gone to visit. Um, And I just remember being like, he's being so pushy and I don't. I know I'm getting ready to leave, but I don't know how much more of this I can take. And I remember Colin being like, are you safe? Like, it doesn't sound like you're 100% safe. Like, are you sure you are okay? Because, like, Colin would have come up and gotten me in a heartbeat. Like, he only lived, like, three and a half hours from the city. But, like, if I had called, he would have been there. And I was just like, no, everything's fine. Like, yes, I'm drunk. Yes, he's drunk. But I have it. Like, things are okay. So I continued to get like really stupid shitty plastered and I, the rest of the night is like, it's just fragments. I still don't remember everything that happened. I do remember um, Marco and I getting into an Uber. I remember him trying to make out with me and trying to shove his hand into my top and up like the legs of my shorts and then getting upset with me whenever I was just completely unresponsive. And and this is after the fight that you had had in the kitchen where you said no. Exactly. I mean, there was absolutely zero gray around exactly where your boundary was. Right. That was, you made that very clear. Yeah. And I mean, I, looking back on it, I was, in that Uber, I was probably going in and out of consciousness too. Cause like, I just, I had had so much to drink and like, I remember getting out of the Uber and I very clearly this part, remember the Uber driver looking back at me in the rear view mirror and telling me to have a safe night. And like, after that, I remember Marco pulling me up to our apartment like he didn't even he wasn't even holding my hand he like had a hold of me by my wrist I remember it hurting and then I remember my head being in a toilet because I was vomiting and like him like sitting behind me just like almost to the point of crying being like I just don't understand why you don't love me why don't you love me anymore and then I remember waking up the next morning and him being in bed with me where he wasn't supposed to be. And like, I remember feeling really, you know, still really sick. And I was going to get up and go move to the couch. And that's when I realized like my top was still on, but my bottoms were gone. And like it, that wasn't abnormal. Cause I actually, I actually prefer to sleep naked, but like, it was just weird that the bottom part of my clothes were off. Like that wasn't something I would have done. My top. Right, right. You would have taken it all off. Yeah, it either all would have been off or my top would have been off because I never sleep in my bra. 
but it was just, it was odd. And I went and I looked next to the bed and my shorts weren't next to my side of the bed. All that was there was like a little trash can that Marco had obviously put there in case if I got sick. And so I just kind of put it out of my mind for right then I moved into the living room and kind of in and out, like went back to sleep and just was like, whatever, last night was a hot mess anyway. And I didn't really remember anything at that point yet from like getting home. But um, it wasn't until later in the day, like I woke up and Marco had been to the grocery store and he brought me some Gatorade and he was just sitting and like chatting with me. And he even like brought up the fact that I was sitting there with like no, no pants on. And that's when I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, did you, did you try to undress me last night to like help me get more comfortable? And he was like, nope. I don't know what happened to him. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I remembered, like, my purse was nowhere to be found because I had taken a purse to the party. And I told him, hey, can you go get that? Like, I, I'm so sorry that I left that there, but, like, I'm in no state to go back. And he was, like, all for it. He was like, yes, of course I'll go get your purse. He was just being really overly helpful. And... I remember when he left, I called Colin again because like after he had left, I went back into the bedroom and that's when I found my shorts, like just my shorts, no underwear. And they were completely pulled inside out and it was just odd. And I couldn't find my underwear anywhere. I was, I had no idea where they had gone. And that really like struck me weird. You're kind of starting to like put the pieces together. Yeah. And that's when I called Colin and I was like, I... I don't know, but something may have happened last night. And like, he was like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, and I told him and he was like, oh my God, Allie, do you think he, do you think he forced himself on you? And I was like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I don't remember anything. And, you know, I could have done that stuff. Like, who knows? I was so blackout drunk. And he was just like, okay, well, you know, keep keep me in the loop. Like I'm here for you. And it wasn't until the next day, whenever I was at work, like the day before I had kind of noticed that like whenever I peed, it kind of hurt. And like, I had these weird, weird bruises, like on the inside of my thighs. And it wasn't until the next day, I remember being at work and going to the bathroom and I looked down and they were fingerprint bruises. And that's when I got the first flash of like what had happened and really all I remember of him doing to me that night was forcing my legs open while he went down on me and that's it. But pretty much as soon as I remembered that I like, I just like fell apart and I knew immediately I had to get out of there. Like I couldn't go back. Like I was supposed to, you know, I was supposed to go home that night. And I called up a friend and a good friend of mine. Um, and I asked her if I could stay with her that night and told her what happened. And of course, Marco reached out to me like, why wasn't I home? And I just immediately accused him. I was like, you forced yourself on me. I have, I have these bruises on me and I remember you doing this like how could you do this to me and he had no response he just was except 
So he claimed he didn't remember because he was drunk too, but at the same time, he just immediately started apologizing profusely. And so I think on some level, I was like, you know exactly what you did to me, and you just don't want to actually admit it. So that's when I really got the process going of like moving out. I stayed with my friend for a week until I found an apartment, and then I grabbed pretty much what I could, including Phoebe, and I left. And I told him I needed time, but really I knew, like, I was never going back there. Like, that, it was one thing to try to make a marriage work after an infidelity. It's a complete other thing to try to make it work after a sexual assault. And I just didn't have it in me to try after that. I was, I was like, no, no more. Like, you're not going to hurt me like that again. No. And especially knowing, you know, what he knew about your past. And I mean, there's so many factors that make that kind of betrayal just, you know, deeply, deeply wounding. And um, I mean, yeah, I think your instincts 100% are right when you realize that's a boundary that was crossed that you can never go back from. I also want to point out, too, that um, a lot of people have misconceptions about sexual assault within marriages. And we tend to um, delineate like sexual assault as its own category of abuse versus like intimate partner violence as its own nice, tidy little category. And oftentimes they blend together. And I know so many survivors who were assaulted by a spouse or uh, a romantic partner. And, you know, I think it just goes to speak against that. Um, I mean, many parts of your story go to kind of speak around that stereotype of like the the bad guy who jumps out of the parking garage and hits you. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen and I don't want to minimize that, but we don't do a, Yeah. We don't do a great job talking about the fact that like most sexual assault is by someone, you know, and oftentimes it's by someone you trust and are in a relationship with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, I feel like I can speak on that so clearly because I mean, that is what happened to me. Both, both assaults were perpetrated by people that I knew that I I thought I could trust and they threw it back in my face and pretty much took whatever they wanted. And I think at the end of the day, that's that's been one of the things that has been so hard to get over because like, I feel like I'm a very trusting person and like whenever I love somebody, I throw my all into that relationship. And so for for my husband to do that was completely and utterly devastating. Like, even though I was already in the process of getting ready to leave, like, that was just, that was a whole other level. And honestly, I, even, even now it kind of blows my mind because I never thought he would have been capable of that. So, um, so yeah, it, and it came with a whole other load of problems too, because then I had to accept that, you know, not only had I been raped once, I had been raped twice. And it was just, it, it's so hard to like navigate through, through the shame and like this false sense of what did I do to like bring this on myself? Like what energy am I putting out there that like, this is okay. Right. So. Which is, which is not ever, ever your fault and you're not putting any energy out there, but I, I do really appreciate that. It, how could it not feel like that, you know? And that's, and that's what part of the healing process is, work through 
the self-blame and the shame and um, find trust in yourself again. Like I, how did I, I trusted this person. Apparently there's something wrong with me that I can't like, you know, that I picked bad apples or that I couldn't see it coming or like, you know, like I, I guess, you know, it's so hard not to make it about something being wrong with you and to have to assume that label is part of your identity. Again, it's just, yes. um, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And like, it was very hard to, to kind of like be proud of myself for leaving. Cause like anybody that I told about it, like when it happened, like, I just remember so many of my friends just like applauding me and being like, you were so strong to leave after something like that. And I didn't feel that way at all. So it, it took a long time to kind of recognize that, yeah, I did have to be strong to get through that, but it's, even now it's hard. Right. To really believe it deeply. Yeah. Yeah. To actually like be like, yeah, I was strong and I was brave for doing this because I know for so many other women, it's so hard. And like, it takes a lot to work up to leave and like. Your whole life was intertwined with this person. It's not just like, okay, it's over. Goodbye. It's done. Woohoo. You know, it's, it is, it is hard. And I, I do also really love that there are people in your life who can sometimes point out your own strength when you can't see it yourself. Even if you don't believe it, I think over time when the people you love and that care about you plant those seeds they will grow. And, and there are moments as you, you know, start to heal and that you can sort of tune into that other perspective and say, you know what, I, I was strong. That was fucking hard. That is not an easy thing to do, but it is totally normal to kind of like ebb and flow in terms of how, how much you actually like really believe it. And that's normal too. It's not like you just wake up one day and you're like, yep, I'm healed. And I believe I was strong and we live happily ever after you Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Other times Absolutely. you can be having like a baller day and you're like, I rock. It's just all over the place. Yeah. And that is one, that has been 100% my experience. Like after all of that, like some days I feel, I feel incredible. And I like look back and I'm like, wow, look at how far I've come and look, look at what an amazing person I am. And then other days it's incredibly difficult. And like, I don't feel like that strong person that, you know, had the courage to leave, you know, that abusive relationship. And yeah, it's my coping this time has been a real roller coaster. Like, like you said, some days it's like two steps forward to one step back. Like it just, it's this healing journey has been a lot harder even though I've been so wonderfully supported by my friends and family through the entire thing. And I am thankfully now in a very wonderful and very loving relationship that like has kind of put all of my former fears and insecurities to rest because like, I truly believe this time, like I have found the right person because, um, and it, ended up being Colin like he he was there through Colin <laughs> I'm so yes Woo! I thought it was going there but I wasn't sure and I am just so pumped. yeah um I mean that's a really long and complicated <sighs> story too but um Col- 
Colin and I were actually uh, high school sweethearts from when I was 15. And we had a really long period of time uh, brought about by Jason that we didn't talk. Um, but we found each other after, again, after I had been married to Marco after exactly 10 years. And um, we we really picked everything back up pretty much right where we had left it. And that's honestly like one of the most amazing things about our relationship. Like I can literally describe it as easy as breathing. Like he just, he's just wonderful. I mean, I could sing his praises all day long, but um, I mean, he he supported me through a very hard time and our relationship was definitely not accepted in the beginning, like by several people, because a lot of people thought that I just left Marco for Colin and that was not what happened at all. And Colin got a lot of flack from people being like, you stole that guy's wife away. And again, people, people just don't know like what happens whenever they are not experiencing it themselves. But I, I'm thankful every day for Colin in my life because he, he's my, he's my biggest supporter. Like he, he knows that I'm a part of We Are Her. Like he knows my entire history and he like, yeah, he just, he is part of what gives me the strength to keep going. And he was part of your journey through all of these other, you know, people and incidences like, you know, be it that he was from far away, but like he was still there and you knew you could rely on him. And he has like a really intimate working knowledge of all that you've been through. So I do think that like being with someone where you don't, and it could be romantic or not romantic. It could be friend, family, whoever, but like having someone that you don't have to explain yourself to who just gets it. Um, you know, he, he, he has that, he was part of your journey through all of that. Exactly. And I never felt like I had to justify myself to him or anything. Like I could just tell him how things were like it was and he was 100% accepting. And like, I think that what that's what makes our relationship so strong. Like we're just so accepting of each other for, you know, all of our eccentricities, all of our wonderful qualities and all of our flaws. Like it's just, it is the healthiest relationship I've ever been in. And I'm just, it may sound like, oh, yay, all sunshine and rainbows, happy ending. But I mean, at the same time, I mean, this is the life I'm living and I'm every day grateful for it. I, um, I wanted to circle back to around something you said about how, um, your healing journey, like even, I think you said, even though I've had tons of support from friends and family, um, and I wanted to just affirm that like all of that support from Colin, from friends, from family, that's amazing. But people's healing journeys are their own and they are in a lot of ways you are having to do that work by yourself and it is individual and it is personal. And a lot of it is something that no matter how much support you get, there are things that you just have to do by yourself that only you can do for yourself. Um, so I just wanted to affirm that, but I, um, yeah, that like, it's even with all of that support, it's still really fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, and don't get me wrong. I of course appreciate all of the support from my friends and family, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's what I lived through and, you know, even as much as I would 
very gladly love to give that baggage away and all of that trauma. Like at the end of the day, like it's mine to kind of search my way through the darkness through. Like at the end of the day, like the person who has to come to terms with it and figure out how to inevitably cope and move on for the stronger is me. And like, I'm, even though sometimes I just wish like, you know, it would just hurry up and be here already and I could move on and be like, yeah, I am totally over, well, not over because you're never really over it, but like I am, I have accepted what has happened to me and I, I am the better and the stronger for it. Like I am very open in the fact that like, I'm just not there yet after what happened to Marco and sometimes even what happened with Eric, because I feel like now it's just all compounded onto each other. So I think that's why there's multiple traumas, multiple traumas. Yeah. And so I think sometimes that's what makes it so hard is just like, even after dealing individually what happened in each situation, the, just the fact that it happened twice and like, yeah, and in different ways. It's just, it's all kind of a big, like, complicated twine ball of mess that I'm still, like, trying to unravel and unpack. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good, um, is that a metaphor? Is that the right term? <laughs> the visual. The metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the but the visual of it being so tangled, it's because we can't compartmentalize that stuff. It's not like this A, B, C, it happens, you know, and it has neat little boundaries around it. It all exists within our interior life and it gets mushed up and tangled together. And our current experiences are tangled up in it and our past experiences are tangled up in it. And it's they intersect and they touch each other and at various points. It's not this neat, tidy little thing that you can just kind of sort through and process and put away. It's a lot to unravel and work through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I like that, that ball of, of yarn. Thank analogy, you. it's an analogy. It is, yeah. <laughs> That's what it is, not a metaphor. I knew something, okay. Um, regardless of my really poor English skills, um, I did want to just kind of ask you a little bit more about like what, so we, you know, you've kind of been talking about like your healing journey. Like what, t- what does that look like for you kind of, on a day-to-day, like week-to-week basis? Like what are you, what are you doing for you right now um, to help that process along? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've found a lot of um, comfort in yoga. Um, I watch uh, Yoga with Adrian on YouTube uh, because again, with my anxiety and stuff, going to an actual studio um, is sometimes difficult because then I have to work through all of the um, anxiety of well, are people really looking at me? Like, can they see how I'm messing this up? And so yoga with Adrian has really been like very, uh, very safe and very comforting for me and that I can do it in the comfort of my own home. And I knew enough about yoga from doing a couple classes in college that I can pretty much work through what she's working through. And she just offers so many different variations of, uh, sessions like there's uh one for when you have menstrual cramps and there's ones when you've had a very depressing day and like they've all been incredibly helpful and they have also been helpful in the way that you know this is something I do for comfort but it's also something that I do for my physical health as well because uh 
I have struggled a lot with um, negative coping mechanisms in that I go to food for comfort as well. And uh, sometimes I gravitate too much towards food for coping. And then I get really down on myself about my body image. So yoga has really been a way that I've kind of helped, uh, you know, kind of combat that and be like, yes, I'm going to live a healthier life because in the end, like how I feel about my body is also going to make me feel happier if I'm working to reclaim it. Well, also Right. It's so tied to that aut- autonomy and like the wellness piece of, of what has been, you know, the violations that had happened against your body, being able to feel comfortable in your skin again. I can imagine that that would be like a huge uh, point of focus for channeling that healing energy towards. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, she's just, it's just fun to like work with her through that because she has a lot of fun energy and she doesn't take it too seriously. And I think that's why I find it mentally comforting too because she'll she'll even go through stages of being like and if this position is too hard for you you can you know take it easy and you can do this because I mean you know everybody is at different levels and that's okay and I just I really appreciate like all of her acceptance that we are all at different different levels and stages like whether it's physically and or mentally like I just feel like she really gets it and so that's been a safe space for me, just even in the comfort of my own home that I've been able to do. Um, I also practicing acceptance, right? Because if she's giving you permission and modeling it, then you can like try to do that for yourself too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because sometimes that's, that's really hard for me is to accept kind of where I'm at in my healing journey. Like I feel, I feel myself like inadvertently like beating myself up about it a lot like being like you need to do better like you should be better by now even though I know this is such a process like it just takes time and however much time it takes me is okay but some days it's just really hard to reconcile that and so sometimes turning to Adrian for that makes it a little easier yeah it's like a meta practice for for other types of healing not just a practice about yoga I love that I also find deep comfort in writing. I've been writing since I was pretty much able to write stuff down. I've always had a very overactive imagination. I've been very good at capturing that on paper or now computer as I do. Um, I write mostly mostly novels and stuff, but um, I mean, the We Are Her blog really gave me an outlet to kind of share my story and just taking taken so much comfort in the fact that like I'm not alone in what I've been through like others have been through similar similar trauma and also putting my story out there to let others know that they aren't alone in what they're going through like surviving sexual assault is hard and like it happens way more than we will ever talk about and so for them to feel you know, good and knowing that, you know, you work at your own pace. And when you're ready, we are here. I I really love that message. And um, I think this is actually like kind of the perfect time. I usually try to, to end every episode with, with the, the guest of, on the podcast kind of sharing a message to any survivor who might be listening, whether they're still in that abusive dynamic or they're out. But like, if you, what, you know, if there's one thing you could say to survivor listening, what would it be? You are never truly alone in your experience, even though it may feel like that, like, because I definitely understand that because 
I felt that way for a very long time. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are people who are here who are willing to listen to you and never should you feel like your story is invalid. We hear you. Here, here. I, yes, we are her is here, but there are so many resources to other resources that, um, you know, could be more local or online resources. If anyone listening ever needs help getting pointed in the right direction, we are her is a great place to inquire and we're happy to help support you in getting connected. Um, yeah, you can, I, yeah, you, you're part of the community too, and you have been for a long time. And I really love, love that perspective. Of course, always. I am here. If anybody ever needs to reach out, uh, you know, reach out to Emily or Stevie. They they know me. I am Khaleesi. If you need to go and hear my, if you need to go and hear my my complete story, it's actually all written down. So um, I I love you, and we are sisters. So. Oh well, with that, I think we will kind of wrap up the episode. Um, and I just want to say thank you again for sharing your story um, out loud with your words, you know, like <laughs> putting it out into the out into the world for others to hear. It's an amazingly brave thing that you're doing, and I, um, it's been a real joy to just talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much, Emily. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.